The question that every follower of Christ should ask upon coming to faith is this. How now shall we live? I know you're not supposed to use shoulds, but I'm going for it. The question every follower of Christ should ask upon coming to faith is this. How now shall we live? The gospel that saves us also compels us into a new way of life. What we believe in our heads and hearts should fundamentally change how we live, act, and behave in the world around us. Now, as a church, we spent 22 weeks going through Romans chapters 1 to 11. 11 chapters of just rich theological foundations unpacking the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Now, two weeks ago, we made the turn uh, in Paul's letter, and the final five chapters now, 12 to the end, these are all about the life that we live in light of the gospel. This is the how now shall we live section of the letter. Now, as Kevin taught us two weeks ago, the life that we live, it's lived in view of God's mercies, okay, in view of God's mercies, and it's one marked both by bodily sacrifice. We offer ourselves and our, our doing to God in worship, giving our whole selves to him, and transformation through a renewed mind. I think you could, you know, title the Christian life, uh, the gospel-fueled life, with that little phrase in chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, this is your spiritual worship. That's the Christian life, spiritual worship. Now, if you have an ESV in your lap, you can look at the footnote, which says that phrase could be translated rational service. The first word in Greek is logikos. It's our logical worship. Now, I like that phrase because of of what Paul says around it in verses 1 and 2. He says, in view of God's mercies, in view of everything we talked about for 11 chapters, offer your bodies as a sacrifice and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Logical worship, it means both sacrificial doing and mind renewing. This is talking about sanctification. The gospel transforms us by renewing our mind and fueling our action in worship to God. But notice Paul doesn't say be transformed by the filling of your mind. No, he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation will not just involve filling our heads with new information, but it requires actually our very ways of thinking to be brought to life in a new way, such that it leads to lives lived differently. We could say transformation or sanctification is the process of restoring integrity to men and women. So what does that mean? From Romans 1 and through the letter, Paul often told us about the disintegration of minds and bodies, thinking and actions. They're, they're, they're not in line. They're messed up. It begins in, in, with the wrath of God in chapter 1, uh, where Paul, I, I think he's pointing to the creation, says, Adam and Eve, they knew the right stuff, but they didn't worship. And with the fall, we're told they became futile in their thinking, and God gave them over to a debased mind. Ever since the fall, our minds don't actually operate correctly, and all kinds of unrighteous actions follow. Well, then from, from that point in the letter, we often encounter people where, where their minds and their actions are out of sync. They're, they're not integrated. So in chapter 132, we find those who know what is just. They know the right thing. They know what is just. They know that God's commands are just. But nevertheless, they both do and applaud injustice. 
In chapter 2, verses 21 and 23, we find people who do the very things that they've taught others not to do based on God's word. They know the right thing, and they do the opposite. It's, it's out of whack, out of line. Chapter 7, we find the miserable person who knows God's command, wants to do it, but always finds evil close at hand, ready to take him captive. In chapter 10, we find the person who is zealous for God, but in their zeal for God, that gets in the way of their submitting to God. There's a disconnect between their minds and their bodies, their doing. And this disintegration points to the need for both a renewed mind and transformed action, transformed living. To put it in the terms of Romans 12, in light of the gospel, we need to think rightly and live sacrificially. We need right thinking and right doing. So as we approach our passage this week, we will see Paul encourage us along these two lines, our thinking and our doing. And in fact, I I think almost every week until we finish this letter, Kevin and I will probably be pointing back to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, because it's so foundational to this part of the letter, with the call to offer our bodies in sacrificial worship to God and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So with that, let's read our passage for this week, and then we'll dive into it. We're in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, and if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word. Paul writes this in Romans 12, 3 to 8. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In church, this is the word of the Lord. And say, thanks be to God. Go ahead and grab a seat. You might ask, why stand for the reading? It's to say that this is God's word, and I'm going to do my best with what follows to be faithful to that. But we can, we can know that is God's word. So, Paul begins with the virtue of humility. Okay, before he gets to anything else in the Christian life, he starts with humility. We could say the gospel compels humility. Now, we're going to take this in two parts. So we're going to say... Uh, That the gospel, excuse me, that humility means accepting a faith-fueled assessment and a grace-gifted assignment. Humility means accepting a faith-fueled assessment of ourselves, and humility means accepting a grace-gifted assignment in the body. Now, in both cases, we'll see clearly the gospel compels this kind of humility. So let's dive in. Humility means accepting a faith-fueled assessment. Paul calls us in 12.2, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And right away in verse 3, he tackles the topic of our mind or our thinking when it comes to ourselves, our self-assessment. The word in Greek, think, appears four times in verse 3. We could translate it, don't be thinking more highly of yourself than what you ought to think, but be thinking so as to be thinking rightly. If we wanted to play with it a little bit, we could say, don't think high-mindedly, but think right-mindedly. The gospel calls us to get our head on straight 
and not be prideful. And as most of us know, or we all know, pride is a universal problem, which I think is why Paul tackles it first. I like what C.S. Lewis says about pride. He says, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. Tiffany, there's a slide for this if you want to throw it up. And of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty themselves. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. It's a pretty good warning. If you ever feel like, oh, that person's so prideful, check yourself real quick because it may be it's triggering something in you, uh, the pride that you have. But this is the great sin of pride. We all know it. We've all experienced it. We, we've, we've seen it maybe in ourselves. And so verse 3 says, in view of God's mercy, we should not be prideful in our thinking. We should not be haughty in our thinking, but to think of ourselves with sober judgment. We need to be honest in our self-assessment, and the implication is we need humility. We need humility. I remember hearing an African-American preacher, a seminary professor named Robert Smith, and he described humility as being right-sized. You got to be right-sized. And it just, it always stuck with me. I thought, yeah, that's right. We have to see ourselves honestly and clearly, be right-sized. Because both thinking too highly of ourselves and thinking too lowly of ourselves, they both are forms of pride. Say, really? Even the second? Yeah. See, if, if you're prideful or haughty, you think you should measure up to a really high standard, and you think that you meet or exceed that standard. You know, you're, you think you are that great. If you have low self-esteem, you also think you should measure up to a high standard, but you feel as if you're missing that standard. You're failing to meet it. Now, in the first case, pride inflates you. In the second case, pride crushes you. But they're both pride. Humility understands who you are. It has a sober self-assessment, and in your own eyes, you're thinking you are right-sized. So Paul's very first instruction on how now shall we live, it's humility. The gospel compels humility. So Augustine, church father writing in the uh, 4th century, I guess, end of the 4th century, he writes this. He says, the first part of the Christian life is humility. The second, humility. The third, humility. And this I would continue to repeat as often as you might ask direction. Not that there are no other instructions which may be given, but because humility must precede, accompany, and follow every good action which we perform. Then he says this. You can see it up there. Humility must be at once the object which we keep before our eyes, the support to which we cling, and the monitor by which we are restrained. Or else, pride will wrest wholly from our hand any good work on which we are congratulating ourselves. As we get to, to all of the commands that are going to follow in the letter, latter half of this letter, we have to keep at the forefront of our minds this humility that Paul calls us to. The first mark of a renewed mind is humility, shown in a sober self-assessment. I don't know if you're familiar with the author Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she wrote a bunch of short stories. She's a Catholic uh, author. Most of her stories center around the South, uh, kind of post-Civil War, uh, maybe Reconstruction era type story or setting. And, and her stories are well known because her characters just jump off the page. They oftentimes are they're, they're caricatures. They're almost grotesque in their features and in, in who they are. And they often illustrate you know, vice and virtue in extreme ways in the stories that she tells. In one story, which is entitled Revelation, uh, the reader encounters a prideful woman named Ruby Turpin. 
And Mrs. Turpin, uh, one description of her is that Mrs. Turpin always noticed people's feet. Like, huh, what's that about? Well, uh, of course, it perfectly captures her central problem of pride because in order to see someone's feet, you have to be looking down. And she looks down on everyone. Mrs. Turpin, throughout the story, is, she looks down on everybody she sees. The story is set in a, a doctor's office's waiting room. And in her head, you know, she finds this waiting room far too small for the outrageous prices that this doctor is charging for checkups. And we're told that, that Mrs. Turpin's little bright black eyes, they take in all the patients in this crowded and dirty room. And she passes the time by making scornful judgments on them. And while doing so, she's often praising Jesus for giving her such a good disposition. But the irony is that Ruby Turpin, she's not a well-to-do, polished, genteel lady. No, she's, <laughs> she's described in the story as obese and ugly. And what O'Connor's getting at is her outward appearance is intended to let us know about what her inward life is like. Furthermore, Mrs. Turpin and her husband, they're pig farmers. But on their farm, they have just enough, compared to others, for her to feel justified in looking down upon those that she hires as day laborers and the common folk that she's observing in the waiting room. But she's, she's so proud of herself that she boasts to one woman in the, in the waiting room that she says, our hogs are not dirty and they do not stink. And you think, what in the world, what kind of pride could be so blinding that it makes you think your pigs don't stink? Well, that's what Mrs. Turpin has, that kind of pride. And her pride, it's ironic in two ways because throughout the story, she thinks she's humble when she's not. And then secondly, the qualities that she's judging others for are the very ones that we see that she shares in the story. Now, you can read the story and laugh at it, the way that it exaggerates these qualities that maybe we've interacted with in our lives with other people. But the universal truth, truth is this, that none of us have reason to look down on anyone, and yet we do. We know we do. You know, we are all Mrs. Turpin, <laughs> is what the story gets at. We, too, are not right-sized. We, too, need humility. And in our passage, Paul tells us how to get it. It's that next line in verse 3. That sober judgment comes according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God has given us faith by which we can know ourselves. That's where humility comes from, our faith that God gives us. Now, there's some debate about that part of verse 3 over what the measure of faith means. So some take the word measure to mean the amount of faith, that God has given different amounts of faith to different people. It's possible. Others take the word measure to mean standard, like a yardstick, meaning that God has given us a standard of faith in the gospel by which we measure ourselves. Both are, are possible within the text. I'm not going to get into that particular debate, but I want us to notice, in both cases, God gives the faith. There, there's a sense in which faith is, is a gift we receive from God. Paul's saying in, it's in relationship to God. It's through our faith in him that we can receive an honest and humble self-assessment. Paul started chapter 12 saying we live in view of God's mercies. And he says here in verse 3, it's our faith in the gospel that fuels our self-assessment. Now in O'Connor's story about Mrs. Turpin, it's called Revelation. And she finally gets a revelation in the end of the story. She's hosing down her hogs that don't stink. Uh, and she looks up and she sees this vision. It's this heavenly parade marching up this, you know, road up into heaven. And th there's this horde of people. And she realizes the group is led by the very people that she had proudly disdained. 
And so in her head, as she's thinking about it, it says there were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. She's judging them, even in this vision of this heavenly procession to heaven. But then she looks closer, and she notices, bringing up the end of the procession, okay, in, in last, those were the first, these are the last, bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those like herself and her husband Claude. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. Yet, she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Mrs. Turpin finally sees that the thing keeping her from heaven is her belief in her own goodness. It's her, her perceived virtue. As one theologian, John Gerstner, said, for many people... The main thing between them and God is not so much their sins, it's their damnable good works. And isn't that what Romans has taught us so far? By seeing all that Paul has said in chapters 1 to 11, we can finally look honestly at ourselves. See, it's our faith in the gospel that fuels our self-assessment. We're told we have no reason to boast because we've all sinned and fallen short. We have no reason to boast because we're all saved by grace through faith. We have no reason to boast because all of our right living, well, it's a result of the gift of grace. And we have no reason to despair because despite our fallenness, God has not left us alone, but he's revealed his righteousness apart from the law. We have no reason to despair because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have no reason for despair because in Christ there's now no condemnation. And we have no reason to despair because nothing can separate us from God's love. It's our faith in the gospel given by God that fuels our sober judgment. It fuels our humble self-assessment. It helps us to be right-sized. See, we are more sinful than we ever realized, and at the same time, more loved than we dare to imagine. Therefore, Paul says, think rightly about yourself. Humility means accepting a faith-fueled assessment. And second, Humility means accepting a grace-gifted assignment. The gospel compels humility in our thinking and our doing, and Paul now turns to our doing. In verse 4, he uses one of his favorite metaphors for the church, which is the body of Christ. Just as our physical bodies are a unified entity and yet have differing parts that do different things, in the same way, Paul says, the body of Christ is one body, it's a unified whole, but with many members that do different things. That's the metaphor. Now, if we look at the end of verse 4, Paul says the members or parts of a human body do not all have the same function. Function. The King James said they do not all have the same office. We could say they don't have the same job, the same assignment. The word in Greek is praxis. Maybe you've heard that word before. It often means deeds or actions. So orthodoxy is right doctrine, sound doctrine. Orthopraxy is right living or right action. Paul says, in the body, different parts have different jobs to do, and so in the church, different members have different gifts to be exercised in the doing. The emphasis in the verses, though, it's not on the ability, it's not on the giftedness of the member, it's on the role or the action that needs to be done. Verse 6 in the ESV says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given, let us use them. Well, translators, there's are uh, supplying the words, let us use them. They're not actually there. 
But if you read it, you know, without that command, let us use them. You know, having gifts that differ according to the grace given, in prophecy, in proportion to our faith, in teaching, in the teaching, you realize that, that the gifts are seen in the doing. That's where the gifts are seen. You, they, they, they bubble up in the doing. So in generations past, there was a ton of energy spent doing, you know, spiritual gift assessments. You take a test, and it spits out the results like Myers-Briggs and tells you what spiritual gift you have, and then you can go and do what you were made to do in the body. Now, it's, that, that's not all bad. Again, self is good, sober self-assessment is good. But it's possible to spend so much time trying to discern our gifts that we fail to actually use them. We never get to the doing, to the practice, because we spend so much time trying to figure out who we are. Worse, even, is when we make excuses for not doing things because it's not my gift. The emphasis in these verses is on our assignment, our jobs within the body. Now, that said, I realize there is still a lot of maybe confusion, a lack of clarity around the gifts. So let me give us a, a, a quick primer on how the Bible talks about gifts, and then we'll circle back to our passage. So the first thing we can say about how the Bible talks about gifts is that every believer is gifted by the triune God, okay? Every believer is gifted by the triune God. There's three main passages that talk about gifts. They all use the body metaphor. So you have Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and following. In Romans 12, it's God the Father that gives the gifts. In Ephesians 4, it's the second person of the Trinity, Christ the Son. He's victorious, and in his victory, he gives gifts as, you know, spoil of war to the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, the emphasis is on the Spirit, third person of the Trinity. 1 Corinthians 12, though, is equal opportunity. It talks about all of uh, the persons of this one triune God. But the gifts, the word for gifts, is charismata. So grace in Greek is charis or charis. And the gifts are charismata. You might hear the word charismatic that comes out of that. Okay, they are grace gifts or gifts of grace. So for us, every believer is gifted by the triune God, and we need to recognize that the origin of these gifts is the undeserved and given grace of God. Second, the list that we find in those three passages in the New Testament, the lists that are given of the gifts, they're not exhaustive, meaning uh, that, that they're representative of a variety of gifts that might be in the body. So commentators universally agree that none of these three lists, lists covers every single possible gift, but they're representative. So if you read, you know, one of those passages, you're like, ah, where am I in this? I don't know. I don't see myself. You know, don't worry. You have been uniquely gifted by God. Third, Christians are called to minister in an area even if they are not specifically gifted in that area. So for example, we're all called to give and be generous, but not all will have the gift of generosity where it just comes naturally with joy, but we're all called to do it. We're all called to evangelize and make disciples, even if some are uniquely gifted with the gift of evangelization. You just see it. You're like, whoa, look at that. But we're all called to do it, regardless of, of our gifting. Fourth, with regard to our discipleship, the New Testament emphasizes holiness more than giftedness. Okay, you, you look at the New Testament commands, it's way more focused. It cares about holiness more than giftedness, which we can take to mean that we shouldn't waste a good deal of time trying to discover what our gift is. We should follow the lead and the commands of the New Testament. We should busy ourselves doing the work of God's kingdom and our gifts will surface. Okay, we'll discover them in the doing. Now, if we put all of that together and then we, we begin to look at our passage, we can better see the emphasis on humility in our exercise 
of various gifts within the body of Christ. Just as different parts of a body serve different functions, so different members of the body will serve differently. But get this. In fulfilling our job, in stepping into an assignment, we get to be those who are dispensing God's grace that's given. We get to be instruments in God's hands in dispensing his grace. So let's, let's look at our passage and use the gifts uh, seen there as an example. Okay? There will be those in our body who will function as a prophet to you. What do I mean by that? Well, they'll speak, maybe in, in community group, maybe after church with a, a passage of scripture that they want to encourage you with. And you'll hear what they say, and you'll say, that's God's word for me. That's God speaking to me through them. Wow. And you know what? You won't praise the gift. You'll praise the God who is using this fellow member to speak his grace to you. Talk about service. Some will serve in such a way that you'll say, wow, God has been gracious to me through this service. They've cared for me in such a way that, whoa, I'm blown away at God's grace. Someone will teach, and you'll say, God has opened my eyes. Help me understand this through this other person. Someone will exhort or encourage, and again, you'll experience God's grace behind that encouragement. When we get to the last three gifts in our passage, uh, we see that we will particularly recognize God's grace in how others are fulfilling their assignment. So in giving, I mean, we, we can think about it and realize it's possible to be compelled to give by something other than God's grace. You know, our tax system compels us to give to the common good. And the suggested tip at Starbucks compels you to give whether you want to or not. You know, you can't find the button to say no. It's just, it's not there. But when people give with true generosity of spirit, we'll say, whoa, look at God's grace working through them. Likewise, people can lead reluctantly, begrudgingly, half-heartedly. But when we experience leadership driven by zeal for God, we will say, wow, look at God's grace at work. People can show mercy. Okay? They can do, you know, exercise compassion and they can do so because of feelings of guilt or because they pridefully think that that recipient is pathetic and they need help. Or, you know, it's possible to, to show mercy and be annoyed in doing so. Oh, I have to do this again. But when mercy is given with cheerfulness, whoa, we'll recognize the grace of God at work. In every case, it's in the doing that we see the gift of grace. This is why accepting our grace-gifted assignment is an outworking of humility. We don't pine after other gifts. We don't get caught up in competition or comparison. We don't get jealous of others' giftedness or assignment. No, we accept how God has gifted us, but more than that, we humbly accept the assignment he has given in this time and place. So question for us. Is God more glorified by a disciple who sits on the sidelines until he finds the opportunity that is perfectly suited you know, to his natural abilities and spiritual giftedness? Or is God more glorified by the disciple who sees a need within the body and takes on that assignment with an eagerness and readiness for God's grace to work in and through it? I know that's a lot, so I'll say it again. Is God more glorified by a disciple who sits on the sideline until he or she finds the opportunity that's perfectly suited to his or her natural abilities, spiritual giftedness, or 
by the disciple who sees a need within the body and takes on that assignment with an eagerness and readiness for God's grace to work in and through it. Now, you might object and say, those are like extreme poles. There's a lot of room in between that. Fair enough, okay? I acknowledge that. But which pole would you like to be closer to, right? Humility means accepting our grace-gifted assignment, and it takes humility at times to cheerfully accept an assignment that may feel outside our gifting. A healthy body, okay, a healthy church, will together discern and encourage and mobilize the various gifts within the body to thrive and, and dispense God's grace such that the whole body grows. Okay? I, I believe a healthy body will do that. But you don't become a healthy body by neglecting the functions or assignments that need to be met while we wait to discern our giftedness. We need to get to work, and the gifts will surface. So let me talk about Anthem for a minute. This, this could feel a little dicey, but we're going to go for it together. Okay? We trust each other. Okay? When I look at Anthem, what do I see? Well... I see so much to celebrate and to praise God for. I mean, I see countless people serving in ways that are quiet and unassuming and persistent and essential. You know, in the back, Tiffany and Dave, they serve most weeks quietly accepting their assignment such that we can worship in ways we're not really thinking about them, we're thinking about God. You know, every week we enjoy sweet times of, you know, family time, fellowship. We can be hospitable to visitors because Rachel quietly serves week after week. We're getting it all set up, helping get volunteers to provide different snacks and, and good things for us to, to nibble and talk. I see servants who are working to care for and disciple our children countless times a month. Okay? It, it both allows other parents in the room to worship freely and also is exposing our children to the gospel. It's amazing. I see community group leaders speaking God's truth, exhorting and encouraging, showing mercy and hospitality and leading with zeal. It's, it's an amazing witness to God's grace. I see people bearing each other's burdens. I see husbands seeking to, to love their wives. I see wives seeking to love their husband. I see parents trying to disciple their kids. I see them leaning on God, trying to, to, to receive God's grace that they might dispense it. I see community groups taking turns and showing up to set up on Sundays. I see men and women and students cheerfully taking down chairs, breaking down our kids' ministry in the back. And I hear stories of our people loving and serving in unglamorous, uncelebrated ways, you know, family, neighbors, strangers even, and they do this because God's grace has moved them. There is so much evidence of God's grace at work in our church that we can, we can rejoice, we can worship God for it. And I also see a body with needs that are crying out to be met. So our church this year, we're doing pretty well financially, but we need to continue as a body to grow in this aspect of our discipleship, which is our, our giving and our generosity together. I look at our children's ministry. You heard Alex's announcement. And I wonder why we've handed the discipleship of our children solely to our moms. Thank you, Jose, and Garen's not here. They have served as well. Now, don't get me wrong. Our kids' program, it's thriving because of our amazing moms that are just doing such an incredible job back there. But dads in the room, okay, you don't leave the parenting at home only to your wives, I hope. Why are we leaving the spiritual nurture on Sundays only to them? I mean, we have baby dedications here. Maybe you have dedicated a child in this room, 
And we hear the whole body pledge to use whatever influence we have to point our kids to Jesus. And I wonder why more of us aren't fulfilling that pledge each week. So a little challenge for you, husbands in the room. Next time your wife is serving, why don't you just offer to jump in and see what it's like firsthand? I mean, Nicole would probably like, no, but you can also just do it and just watch. See what it's like, experience it, and then go get your life scan. You know, those who are her older kids out of the house, consider maybe once a month, once every other month, saying, hey, how can we support and get involved in the back that our kids might receive God's grace through us? Lastly, I, I also long to see our body make new disciples. Wouldn't it be amazing, <laughs> you know, if we had people lining up to get baptized? Now, don't get me wrong. I rest firmly on the sovereignty of God in salvation. I trust that, that we're called to proclaim the gospel and God is the one who has to bring dead people to life. I can't bring a dead person to life. But my prayer is that many of us will witness God's grace moving us out into that space where we are loving and proclaiming the good news of Jesus to our neighbors. Now, I don't say any of that because I want to beat us up. No, no, no. I don't say this to lay a burden on anyone. I say this because the gospel compels this kind of ministry. And I long to see the grace of God operative in our lives. I want to worship all the more because of the fruit that will come from our willingness to accept a grace-gifted assignment. Now, just like our self-assessment, humbly accepting this assignment requires us to do so in view of God's mercy. It can't be in our own strength. It can't because of a, a guilt trip from the pulpit. It must be driven by grace. If you want humility in your self-assessment and in your maybe body assignment, we can't generate that humility on our own. It comes from living, again, in view of God's mercies. We can only do this, I think, by seeing Christ in the gospel. By seeing first his humble self-assessment. Remember Philippians 2? Though he was God, he did not see equality with God as something to be grasped. He was right-sized. He knew who he was. We can see this also by seeing, you know, Christ humbly accepting God's assignment for him. Remember in the garden, Gethsemane, night before he's crucified. Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, don't let me go through this. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. He accepts that assignment for you. He did that for you. He he received humbly the job, the task, the assignment that God had given him for you. And when we see Christ's humility and Christ accepting the cup for us, it's then that we will be fueled by faith to look at ourselves soberly and we'll be gifted by grace to step into God's assignment for us in the body. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are able to humbly receive who we are and to receive what he has called us to in this time and place. So friends, look at Jesus. Believe in what he's done for you. Believe the gospel. Humbly accept your faith-fueled assignment and your grace-gifted, excuse me, your faith-fueled assessment. That's very confusing. And your grace-gifted assignment. Do this. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me pray.